Good morning and welcome here. I'm glad that you've joined us. We are going to start this morning by singing Bless the Lord. And sometimes it feels like there aren't things to bless the Lord about. But then if we stop and think a moment longer, there are lots of things to bless the Lord for. And so that's what we choose to do this morning. worship this morning is found in Genesis 35, 11 to 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Mm -hmm. 
Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Good morning. Let's have a little straw poll. Who here has already gotten stuck with their vehicle at least once? Twice? Three times. Four. Oh yeah, I win. <laughs> that back lane behind my house, it's 
it's a killer. But at the same time, I get that badly needed workout that doesn't come on days with all of the snow. So always a silver lining with everything. All right, so as far as announcements go, uh, you all have your bulletins with you. Uh, also, if you haven't picked up a communion cup, there was one at the entrance, so make sure to get that. As far as announcements go, uh, as was already announced, on the 23rd, there is going to be uh, a congregational meeting with the items that we outlined there, as well as also the uh, uh, elections for the fall. Ladies Bible study, tomorrow at 1.20, uh, 7 o'clock, prayer meeting at the church on Wednesday. December 5th, McGregor EMC Christmas concert. Uh, if anybody is interested in doing anything for that, it doesn't need to be in the normal groups of Sunday school. If you have a song that's on your heart or a poem or anything like that, I encourage you to get in touch with Lyndon Gunther. Uh, I know he is looking for people. And uh, there is a few items needed for Bilal and Fatima. Uh, on the email list that uh, went out, you could see all of the things there. If you need the list apart from email, come and let me know and I'll make sure to get you a copy of it. There aren't too terribly many things left, mostly just towels, clothing, that type of thing. Uh, but at the same time, be good to have all of those things in place. All right, then as far as prayer items go, uh, John and Anne's grandson Dylan uh, has sadly doing quite poorly. And so I'd encourage you all to keep them in your prayers over the time to come. Uh, as far as me, I had said last week that my grandmother was doing rather poorly and sadly she passed away on Thursday in the morning. She was 101 and she really wanted to go home to be with the Lord. So she is in a better place, but I am really gonna miss her. And pray for our congregational meeting coming up. Those are going to be some big items that we are going to be discussing there. Uh, and also uh, for our church as we transition into the season uh, of Advent that is coming. And so, without further ado, please join me now in a time of prayer. Our God, we come before you this morning, first of all, in praise for all of this precipitation it has been such a very dry summer after a number of very dry years. And so, while I'm sure we would all prefer if it was spaced out a little bit more, at the same time, that doesn't change the fact that we are thankful for every inch of snow that we get. And we pray that over the rest of the winter, more will come still. God, we pray, please send the snow so that the reservoirs can be filled so that we can go into the spring on a better footing. But God, thank you. We also thank you for the town that we live in. There's nothing like getting stuck to show you just how wonderful neighbors can be. Proud Canadian tradition to always help those the moment you start hearing those tires spinning. God, we thank you for this town. We thank you for the people in it. We thank you for the neighborliness. And God, we pray that we can rush out there shovels in hand when we hear it as well. And God, we want to bring before you a number of items of prayer on our list this morning. God, we want to bring before you, first of all, John and Anne. After the ups and downs of Dylan over the last year, 
We had all really hoped that this was going to go a different way. And so, God, we pray, continue to be with them. Continue to pull Dylan towards yourself. And, God, continue to be the rock that you have been. And, God, we pray still for whatever healing is needed in that situation to come. Lord, we pray for John and Anne as they go through this time. It is not right to lose a grandson. And so we pray, be with them. And God, we want to pray for my family as well. We want to particularly pray for my Aunt Betty, who is, for the first time in her life, going home to an empty house. And so God, we pray, be with her. Be her strength as you have been all of these years. And please put whoever is needed in her path to be the comfort that she needs during this time. And please also be with the rest of the children as well. She may have been 101, but there is a hole there. And God, we also want to pray for the upcoming congregational meeting. Lord, there are a number of big items that are on that list. Big items that will guide the way that the church goes for the next while. And so, God, we pray, bring us wisdom. God, we pray, give us the knowledge that we need to make these hard decisions rightly, focusing on you as we do so. Lord, we thank you so very much for how you have guided us in the past, guided us all the way up to this point. And so, Lord, we pray, continue to guide us still. And finally, as we look to head into the upcoming season of Advent with the new series about focusing on you and all that we do, on renewal, on refreshment, on refocusing. God, we, we pray open our eyes. Lord, we pray impact our hearts. Lord, we pray guide us to repent of the things that are keeping us from your throne so that the words of what you have done for us that come at Advent, at Christmas, and the time to come, the words that have been passed down from generation to generation all the way back to when you walked the earth, that those words will impact us like we had never heard them before. God, all of these things we bring before you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We come to the end of our series that is the thing that has to happen before we go on to a new one. Uh, our series on learning how to read the Old Testament, where we focused on that one question of who is Israel. Uh, we have covered 24 of the 39 books in the Old Testament so far. And now today we're going to power through the last 15. Most of them are pretty short. When we left the story of the Israelites last week, uh, things were not looking great for the people, as you may remember. The kingdom of Israel had actually just fallen, and the kingdom of Judah had just been conquered as well, and all of her skilled laborers carted off to Babylon in exile. While those who were deemed not worth the effort of carting all that distance, they, they were left behind. Uh, a number also fled the whole situation by running to Egypt, and those that were carted away from Israel when the Assyrians conquered them were scattered to the wind, lost to this day. Sadly, none of those 
that were in the power to prevent that situation, this catastrophe from happening, seemed to know what to do in order to do it. Albeit because they didn't particularly care to listen to the likes of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Isaiah, all prophets who spelled out that this was the way that things were going to be heading if the kings didn't stop the persecution of their people, didn't turn back to the Lord, turn away from their wicked ways. But changing course has never been a strength of a king, especially not when they are heavily incentivized to not do it. And so the monarchy came to an end. And following it came one of the hardest, but also one of the most important periods in Israelite history, and that is the exile. It was a difficult time for the Hebrew people, taken off by the Babylonians when they arrived. You can tell from the books of Lamentations, as well as Ezekiel, and the first part of Isaiah, and into the second part, that the people who made this journey, journey were just internally destroyed by it, because how, how could they not have been? They, they had seen their home torn down. They had seen their wealth stripped away from them, and they had seen their loved ones die in the case of Ezekiel. And then they were marched through an arid, hot climate for about a thousand miles before they found themselves squished into what essentially amounted to prison cities and forced into hard labor, something that we know from the Babylonians' uh, sources from the time this did happen. This isn't just a flourish from the Bible. But by the Babylonians doing this, there was also an unintended consequence uh, because the Babylonians mostly took those that they had use for when they were looking at who to bring with them into the exile. They took the administrators, the skilled laborers, the scribes, the bureaucrats, including priests, because in those days there was an awful lot of overlap there between those different groups. But by taking only these people that they found useful, who they took was a group of people that who were all to some extent educated or literate. Who they took were people who likely all had some amount of scriptural education, as well as they actually had access to the scriptures that the priests managed to bring along as well. And then the Babylonians, when they took these people, these literate people, they put them all together in the same cramped area and they plunked them down right in the middle of a land surrounded by people that the Israelites would have seen as hostile towards them, the Babylonians themselves. And all these knowledgeable Israelite people together, surrounded by the enemy as they arrived, were all wondering some version of the same question. Why is this happening to us? In other words, in the exile, there was a near perfect set of circumstances all come together for the Hebrew people to really delve into their faith as they never have before. God works in many ways. And we can see this happening because it doesn't take too long before the people came eye to eye with the prophets and what they had been saying for generations that message that they had really tried their best to not pay attention to up until this point, which can be seen in how 
Obadiah, which was written when they first got there, is pretty angry about the way that things turned out. And that, in turn, gives way to parts like the second book of Isaiah, which acknowledges that the people did wrong, and there is repentance and acknowledgement for that that runs through that part of the book. The two books of Kings are actually written during this period, and they show this as well, this coming to terms with the fact that what happened to them happened because it was their fault. But as this shift happens, the people's understanding of God begins to change as a result, as understandings of God always change and always adjust when we repent of our transgressions and draw nearer to the Lord. Over the past few weeks, as we have gone through the Old Testament, likely you've noticed that not only do the people seem to think that there are other gods, but they also weren't really all that loyal to the Lord as we would think people should be loyal to God. That is probably best seen in the first period. That is the time up until Moses. For example, the story that we talked about with Rachel, where she took the household idols from her father when they her and Jacob ran off to the wilderness. It is during this time that God is really, you can see that he is the God of their family, their family God, but at the same time, he's kind of one of many in their minds. They were polytheists at this point, like all the people that were around them. Then as the story goes on, there comes Moses and the Hebrew people saved from Egypt by the God of their ancestors, who turns out was strong enough to put the mighty Pharaoh to shame all by himself. Well, that God could do that. Well, that really warranted them changing how they thought about him a little bit, didn't it? It really warrants that first commandment coming, doesn't it? Don't put other gods before the Lord. It is not that there are not other gods in the minds of the Hebrew people, but instead just that there is clearly one that is a cut above the rest who should be treated as such, should be treated as a cut above the rest. This is called henotheism, and it is how the people lived pretty much all the way up until the exile, or tried to live. As we saw last week, they often really just stopped giving God his properties altogether. But now as the people lived in exile, wondering why God did what he did to them, from the prophets they stumble upon a pretty powerful truth. Because as the prophets point out, it was not the gods of the Assyrians or the Babylonians who had the least bit of sway over Israel or Judah's fall, small as those kingdoms were next to the empires. Instead, what had happened to them only took place because of God who was looking out for his people and those in exile, his people that those in exile had stepped upon. But if that was true, that these conquests took place because it was God that orchestrated it, then that, that had to mean that their God had such complete sway over the empires around them as to be able to command them to do something like that. But if that was true, then the gods of the empires themselves couldn't really have the ability to say anything against this god. But by definition, gods have some amount of impact on the world around them. But in what had happened to the exiles, the, the gods of the most powerful empires in the world didn't even factor into what went down. <laughs> 
what the Israelites had realized was that the other gods were imposters next to our Lord. In light of what had happened, the only thing that made even a lick of sense as to why God did what he did was that there was no other God but this one God. And that God was their Lord. And this is when the Israelites became monotheists, people that know that there is only one God. And that knowledge is one that we carry on to this very day. And struck with the magnitude of this realization, the people in exile who know how to read and write and who have the scriptures found themselves suddenly rereading everything again, seeing magnificent truths that they had never even thought to see before. And before they had known it, they even began commenting in the scriptures, changing them to show how this one God had moved through time with his people, guiding them all the way, working toward a brighter future for them, working toward restoration. Pretty much all of the books of the Old Testament, save the ones that are written after this period, follow following this one, shows some amount of revisions from the people during the exile, all illustrating the new wonderful knowledge that the Israelites had come to understand about their God. And while this might be a weird thought to us today, changing scripture, never forget that God was at work throughout the history of the Bible, shaping the books, molding what they would turn into and become locked into and then passed down. At this point, they were still very much so living documents that one day would come to us in the form that they are. As we saw in the first time out in this series, God also worked during a period where reading and writing weren't even a thing. And he was very much so at work here as well. And it was in part because of this, that as the exile wore on for around 70 years, the people managed to say, distinct from the Babylonians around them. For they knew that they were the children of the one God. This was not to say that some people didn't rise through the ranks during this time or that things didn't get more comfortable for the people as the years went on. The book of Daniel shows that there are some, these, there were some that got pretty cushy. But to remain a distinct people for that long, that was God at work. But then the prophets began to speak in a different tone, one of comfort for the people, one telling them that this one God had not forgotten them. What's more is that he was working on something big, a savior to come and get them out of this predicament that they were in, a savior who would be a mighty king, a savior who would strike the enemies of the Lord down and rule over the messianic age to come, a time that would see the people restored. There were many thoughts about who the savior could be, many descriptions as well, but then there came rumors about a powerful ruler in the east at the head of a mighty army, and his name was Cyrus of Persia. And many of the people in exile came to believe that this was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He didn't check all the boxes for sure, but enough of them. 
We know from sources of the time that though the Babylonians were mighty, they really didn't put up much of a fight before the troops of Cyrus. And as the Persian army came before the mighty walls of Babylon, the empire that had taken Judah simply crumbled before Cyrus's feet. The prophets tell us that Cyrus was one anointed by God to set the Israelites free. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, we read that God spoke directly to Cyrus and that this king even acknowledged that there was no other God but the Lord. And while a part of us expects this all to be big talk, we, we, we see that this king of the Persians was just as amazing as he was said to be. Because one of the first things that he does is he sets all the captives of Babylon free, which would have been an unheard of decision. And it's the decision that was recounted in our passage today. It was as if this foreigner was some form of Moses reborn. Go back to the homes you were from and be the governors there under me and you will be free to do as you will. That's the promise of Cyrus, the new king over the new province of Israel, the foreign king who acknowledges the one God. And so those in exile, they pack up, and over the next while, they set off back to their homes that they had left behind all those many years ago. Not all the people choose to go. Some of them were doing pretty well for themselves under Cyrus, and others did not want to leave the side of this new king from the east, see the book of Esther. But many do go, and as they leave, having witnessed the miracle sent by God, they depart absolutely on fire for the Lord, and with everything they are, they are excited to live out the law now rightly to show the world that they are the people of the one God who restores things. And it's now as they are on their way home that I want you to shift your imagination a little bit and try to pretend that you are instead not one of the exiles, but one of the people who hadn't left Judah when the Babylonians exiled everybody that was above you on the food chain. During the past 70 years, while the exile took place, chances are that things, far from being worse for you, actually got pretty good. Likely, there was some amount of taxes that the new people were in charge of paying, but the rulers that were exacting this tax, they were far away in Babylon, so they, they likely didn't really care much what you got up to, just as long as you paid. Not like the kings that they had kicked out, who, while... They were the same people as you. They really liked to milk you and your grandparents and your parents for everything you had. The chances are that you, as one of the people left behind, would have been doing markedly better because of the exile. And just as things are going well for you, then you get the news that in an absurdly short amount of time, mighty Babylon, who had taken Judah without even an effort, mighty Babylon had fallen. And in an absurdly short amount of time, all the people that were dragged into exile before, that is all the people that had stepped on you, your parents and your grandparents next, well, they their children and their grandchildren, 
we're all coming back to be placed in charge again, and you didn't have much of a say in the matter. That is the situation as we come into the end of Isaiah, and the exile draws to a close. And as the old rulers return, it even turns out that things are quite a bit more startling than you might have even expected, because these people returning were not just the same people who had left. They were also quite a bit different in one major way. Because remember that those returning from the exile are now also almost fanatical about their faith after having witnessed what God had done. And their faith after all that time was like your faith, but not quite. Throwing out all the other gods that you were pretty sure that were important to you as well, that that was what the exiles coming home were all about. If that isn't a recipe for conflict right there, I don't know if there is one. And you can read all about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. And as the exiles return, these two groups clash pretty hard at times. They go head to head over almost everything. A lot of things on both sides are pretty big. Those those coming in, they had ideas of living clean and what it meant to live pure that those living there already would have seen as deeply problematic. But in time, things do settle down. A second temple is re-erected right where the first one stood. And a new wall is built around Jerusalem as well. Because while the tension was markedly high to the point where things could have ended in a full revolt, eventually the new faith in the rulers settles in. And the people let it because something's different this time around. It truly seemed like to some extent they actually cared. It took time, but eventually the tension decreases. And in time, the new territory of Persia is set up, ruled over in the name of Cyrus and in the name of God. And while things are not perfect, they are also comparatively not bad. And after everything that we have talked about through our time in the Old Testament, to say that things are not bad, that's amazing. Nehemiah, Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah all write during this period. A time marked by the people learning how to be the people of the law, the people who know how to act as the people of the one God. First and Second Chronicles was also written during this time. And while it talks about the time of the kings, as you read it, you can tell that it also reflects this post-exile period as well. Because instead of showing how the kings lead to the exile, instead it tries to show that things were pointed towards restoration that follows. During this period, a lot of the last edits of the books of the Old Testament also came into being, showing that the people would all come to know that God keeps his promises and that even when things are bad, through God, restoration can come. Chains can be shed. And the glory of God will always, in the end, abound. And so draws to an end the Old Testament. 
with the Israelites in the court of Persia, in the province of Palestine, in Egypt, as well as lost to the fallen Assyria. But those 10 tribes that are lost, there is prophecies that one day they will be found as well. While things are not perfect, the Israelites are in a good-ish place. For restoration has come to them through the efforts of the one God. And the people in return are living the law enthusiastically to show the world that they are his. And there is also a healthy amount of looking forward to the future that will come. But as you may have noticed, this isn't really the picture the Israelites that we have in the New Testament are living when it begins. As Matthew begins, they are a people, again, at odds with one another, who are persecuted, hungry for a Messiah, and sure that the world is going to end any day now. So what happens in the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New? Well, sadly, the good times don't keep on. As many of you know, the Old Testament also has a number of books called the Apocrypha that are not in all of our Bibles. This isn't because there's anything wrong with these books, it's just instead that they're not considered scripture, so we don't put them with the books that are. But while I don't want to go through all of them, there is a set called the Maccabees that we learn, in which we learn that not terribly long after the Old Testament comes to an end, then Alexander the Great goes on a rampage and destroys the Persians outright. And the province of Palestine enters into Greek control. The Greeks of that time were far more interested in making other people that they conquered Greek than letting them just do their own thing as the Persians had. And so once again, the Israelites find themselves in a time of great persecution. And while some of the people manage to fight back, eventually the Romans come in and they take over from the Greeks and continue the policy of oppression, albeit not in quite as terrible way, at least not until the New Testament comes. But under this persecution by an outside power, very much so separate to them, many of the Israelites again turn strongly to scripture for comfort. Some decide the best way to confront this issue is to saddle up with the powers that be. Some decide to cling to the law to such an extent that it becomes all-encompassing in their life, and others fall upon particularly passages from Isaiah, Micah, and Daniel, where they are told of a Messiah who will come to save them, a great king who will rule the people fairly and justly in the messianic age to come. Before him, there will be a herald to pave the way for the Savior, and then will come the Messiah who will be a king of the line of David born in Bethlehem, before whom all will bow." the world ending in restoration and the glory of the one God going out to the corners of the earth, sin forever undone. He would be a Messiah like Cyrus, but this time he would be a Messiah that checked all the boxes. And with that, we are ready for what Advent will bring. And so one last time I ask you, having now finished the Old Testament, who is Israel? Israel are the people in a covenant with God, we learned. 
Israel are people who wrestle with God. Israel are the people of the law who know how to act as God's people. Israel are the people who are called to bring outsiders into the fold. Israel are the people who know what a scourge sin can be. And so know to turn to God before their sin gets out of hand. Israel are also a people who know God never stops reaching out to them. Israel are the people who know that God's justice is for everyone, not just those at the top of the pile. Israel are the people who know that God is mobile with them wherever they are. And from today, we know among many things that Israel are also the people who know that there is only one God and that it is only with this one God that redemption and restoration can be found. As Christians, as people who know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who was foretold, the one we repent of our sins to and follow to the end of time. As Christians, we are in this family of Israel as well. And so as we now look to head into the season of Advent, where our focus will be on seeing Christ again through new eyes, seeing who he is and what he has done through new eyes, I, I say we live in the following truth. Cast down the things in your life that you would think of as gods on par with the Lord. We all have them. We all have things and sins that we place on a pedestal next to God himself that distract us from him. And if there is a single message you can take from this message today about who you are as a child of God, it should be this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. There is no other. There is only the one God. Cast down everything else that you would think of as a God in his place. They are nothing but imposters to the throne. So repent of your sins and wait and see the Savior that is coming. Just you wait to see where this grand story is coming when he arrives. Oh, wait. There's communion. All right, everybody has their communion glass. We read in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, for the tradition I received from the Lord and also handed on to you, is that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way with the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this as a memorial of me. For whenever you eat this bread then and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns.
At McGregor EMC, we believe that communion should be open to all believers. It is a wonderful time where we all join together with all of the many generations that precede us all the way back to Christ himself. Now we should go into a time of prayer where we ask forgiveness for our sins and prepare ourselves to join together with the rest of the church in this way. Please bow. Lord, we thank you for coming before us in this way. Our Lord, we thank you that through communion we can join together with your table, not only all of these years after the fact, but also with the rest of the church to come that has come and that is now. Our Lord, we pray that you do not let just how amazing that is slip us by. In your name we pray, amen. And together, let us eat. And together, let us drink. I ask that you now all join me in reciting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
confer our benediction, we turn to the book of Ephesians. May God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grant peace, love, and faith to all the brothers and sisters. May grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in life imperishable. Go now and serve the one true God.